Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Now, this is the second part of a podcast that we've put together where we are looking at how, in an era of climate change, we can better manage fires in the future. And still with me, beside me, is Dr. Paul Verville. He's a research fellow at Crawford School and he's also an environmental and resource economist. So in the first part of this podcast, we had a look at some of the panellists' personal experiences of the terrible bushfires that have ravaged Australia. We talked a little about some of the politics that have played out in response to the bushfires. And we touched on a little of some of the health implications. And we really want to carry on this conversation with this brilliant panel. So a quick reminder of who we've got around the table here. Uh, Dr. Liz Hanna, who is an honorary fellow at the Fenner School of Environment and Society here at the ANU. We've got Dr. Siobhan McDonnell, who is a legal anthropologist and a lecturer here at Crawford School. Professor Jeanette Lindsay, who is a climatologist at the ANU Fenner School. And last but certainly not least, Professor Steve Dovis, who is an emeritus professor and a former director of the ANU Fenner School. So let's pick it up where we left off. Now, I want to turn to some of the politics because obviously what's happened has uh, certainly sparked a debate around stronger policy in regards to climate change. Siobhan, you attended the UN Climate Change Conference in Madrid in December. What was your impression of how the world perceives Australia's climate politics and policy? Uh, So Australia is definitely grouped with the United States and Brazil as it is, I mean, it is seen globally as one of the worst performing countries in terms of um, blocking initiatives with respect to addressing emissions globally. So that is very much our international reputation at the moment. We have really undermined our global reputation that was really um, looking quite good at the point in time where we were putting in place a carbon trading scheme with uh, a set of Paris commitments attached to it. Um, But at the moment when we go in and negotiate particularly Kyoto carryover credits, partly because there is no other country in the world that is pushing for that particular style of arrangements, we look like an outlier. And I think it really costs Australia a lot in an international context to be seen as such an outlier. And it costs us in terms of our relationships in the Pacific, which is obviously where I spend a lot of my time. So the Pacific Islands Forum, which Australia is a member released a statement in 2016, the forum statement, where they produced a declaration, the Boy Declaration, that identified climate change as the single greatest security threat facing the Pacific. So not China, not militarisation, not nuclear, but climate change. And Australia is moving into the Pacific. We are uh, creating a set of relationships. We like to entertain the idea of the Pacific as family. And yet in the same breath, we are undermining that relationship constantly 
by maintaining this particular set of ideas around, you know, our right to globally export fossil fuels, which Pacific countries constantly call us on. So the Fijian Prime Minister, you would have read his um, op-ed in the days after the bushfire, we pray for Australia and yet we cannot understand why you continue to adopt this particular position. And this is a constant set of refrain from Pacific leaders. So I was involved in the negotiation of the Kainaki Declaration. I was in Tuvalu. I watched our Prime Minister in a room with the Pacific leaders. I know exactly how that set of negotiations occurred. I know the lengths that were taken to take coal out of that declaration. And I know, I know similarly what was put on the table and I know um, how important it is to the Pacific that Australia comes on board with some signalling and some set of indication around commitments towards the region. No amount of donor offerings is enough when Pacific Island countries are facing these deep existential threats. And it's extraordinary to be in Tuvalu. I mean, the location, the Kainaki Hall where where the meeting of the leaders was held was a community hall outside the windows on each side. Funavuti is a very narrow island and from each of the windows where the leaders were sitting, you could see the ocean. I mean, the atoll is going underwater. And the sense was that if you couldn't do a declaration on climate change there, where could you do it? And these, I mean, there is a desperation around these issues now. They are pressing. They, this is, um, you know, these are tangibly impacting on people's entire ways of life and their capacity to live in, in their countries. So I feel like this double speak that our Prime Minister does of maintaining this language of family while at the same time refusing to really take action around climate change is creating a diplomatic bind for Australia in the same way that he is now being captured by domestically by a similar bind on the bushfires. Just uh, and just maybe to to turn to thanks for that, Siobhan, To turn to maybe some of the domestic politics and, and policy. Liz uh, Scott Morrison, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, and has announced a seventy six million dollar mental health package for for firefighters and and fire affected communities. And I understand this includes uh, three counselling sessions, and Medicare rebates for therapy, uh, and and a number of other measures. How do you think this funding, whether it's this funding tranche or future funding for, for mental health and health generally, how should it be spent and, and are there any particular implementation challenges to consider? Uh, the, I mean, the first thing we'd like to check to see whether this is actual new funding or funding that they'd already announced because they had already announced injection of uh, funding to mental health service. So it's not beyond them to to try to give the impression that this is new response to, to firefighting if it's a matter of rebadging. Um, and particularly there were um, Headspace and some of those others and the youth um, youth mental health programs that they had already announced that they would be doing. Um, all funding, of course, is welcome. You know, there's no no doubt of that. Um, and particularly if it's new uh, funding and it's not replacing funding that's already been withdrawn in previous years because that's another um, uh, trick that's been going on um with this, so there's there is a huge need. We do actually know there's an enormous amount of data in terms of the uh, extra health mental health burden that follows uh, follows these. Um, certainly amongst the first responders because they're uh, confronted with some pretty gruesome sights and they and they're doing this and they lose their own. They lose their own families. They lose their own friends, and it's very very gruesome. And they have to bottle up. Uh, their responses because they've they've got to keep jolly for everybody else around them um, because <clears throat> knowing pardon me knowing full well that if they were to fall in a big heap then there could be a cascading things and they need to keep going keep going and keep their chins up um, and so that all that's um, all that's important but the the fact that some people are feeling depressed and despondent in response to this is not pathology. You know, it's a it's a human natural response. So, yes, we do need it, but 
it's better to prevent it. And this is where if we actually really did put in some decent mitigation to actually help and stop this, then there would be fewer people exposed. Um, and Jeanette was talking earlier in terms of where this drying and the high bushfire risk was. That's where Australia is most heavily populated. That's where our ag is. That's where our people people are. And so sometimes you actually hear these stories in terms of, um, you know, our rainfall, you know, some up, some down, almost as if it's equitable. It isn't. The most significant part for Australia is the bit that's at this higher risk. It's damaging our agriculture, which of course we need for food and water security for communities to live and survive. Um, and it's it's infringing more and more and more upon human settlements. Um, and so in the um, preparation component, and if I can just sort of drift sideways a little bit for a moment when we're talking about the policies and, and such, is uh, preparedness for the for the health sector. Uh, we've seen that it's it's been difficult to evacuate people. Um, and so in terms of preparedness and policies to, you know, what can we do, are we preparing enough for, for this, is um, not forgetting the health sector so that we've got more people on the ground. Many of these, like Malakuta, had, um, you know, one single GP, you know, unfunded um, and nearly had to leave if you watched, I think it was on back roads or something, was on recently struggling to actually survive, to have enough finances to maintain ongoing health services in a very much ageing community. So we're going to be confronted with these, but we also need to make sure that we've got all the systems on the ground and sort of other formats so that we've got, you know, practice nurses and you've got the first responders, you know, in terms of the AMBOs, et cetera. The other thing is, of course, is um, preparing people with health education and health promotion so that people have got a really good idea as to what it is that they need to do to keep themselves safe, to look out for others and to be able to differentiate what is minor and what is major in terms of whether they upscale the the response, and that's that's the same for heat or indeed for burns and indeed injuries. So we certainly need to uh, ramp up, and and this needs to go all the way down to the school kids as well. Um, and again, it's a matter of how we sort of carefully play this out in terms of spooking the horses, because again, psychologically, we we know that people feel less despair and guilt and grief in the post event if they have a good sense that well, I did everything I could. Um, and so then it's more of a fatalistic rather than, oh, I failed, something bad happened because I didn't, I wasn't up to speed. Um, and that's a really major component in terms of uh, preparing for the, <clears throat> for the mental health onslaught of clearly what we're going to have a hell of a lot more. And so there's, I mean, there's so many areas I can go on for a very long time if you like. I'd like to just to add something on this. One of the things that has struck me, of course, like everybody else, I've been reflecting back on the 2003 fires in Canberra, um, which came very close to us. Fortunately, we were okay and we didn't lose our house, but it did come close and it was a very frightening time. And I noticed 10 years afterwards when the anniversary of that event was being discussed on ABC radio, that when they played uh, audio of the coverage of the events of 2003 and the siren noise that was mm. used for the emergency <coughs> signal came on, I experienced a PTSD-type mm. event. And, you know, I, I wasn't seriously affected at the time. It was frightening, but, it, you know, it was fine in the end. But it struck me then very forcibly and has increasingly while I've, while these events currently have been unfolding that the impact of events like this on people and on communities will be very long lived down the track. There's an immediate response. There's an outpouring of support and generosity coming from around the world to, to support Australia and Australians and wildlife support services and so on and so on. But there's going to need to be recognition, I think, that there's going to need to be really ongoing long-term strategies to address the impacts of events like this. And if they keep recurring, which I fear they will, then, you know, that, that need just becomes so much greater. Yeah, that long-term, that long-term effect, particularly in the psychological and the, you know, flashbacks and the, mm. and the plunging back down into despair is, um, is certainly well documented. And we certainly know that, you know, in dollar terms, <clears throat> one dollar spent on, um, on the response, it's tenfold in yeah. the, in the ongoing recovery. And this can go on for a, a very, very long time. But 
the other things that we've also learned in how communities recover or in the post-event phase, certainly from um, the 2009 Victorian fires, there's that immediate you know, shock and grief. Mm. Um, and then as communities recover, uh, what was once upon a time lovely golden community cohesion can actually begin to fracture when some have paid their insurance all their lives, some haven't, and then there's that in- inequity and how that's going to be played out is a really important mm. part um, mm. because, A, you can't throw people on the scrap heap and if they can't afford yeah. insurance, have them all, sorry, mate, you know, you're in the ditches now. Society can't do that. But also there's the ongoing stress and that relates into increased rates of domestic violence and assaults as well as the, as well as the suicides. So it's, um, you know, there's a, it's, it's a very much ongoing requirement that needs to be delicately handled. And again, picking up on what was learned from all these um, uh, inquiries and commissions in terms of the responses that we've learned from the 2009 uh, Vic mm. fires and, and others. Um, and which basically needs funding, and and the thing, <clears throat> pardon me, again, sorry for all this. There's the, you know, the responsibility of government is to protecting, and advancing, advancing, you know, the welfare and the well-being of Australians, and so often, you know, the health and the well-being of Australians in in the way they would operate and run their families and run their little communities is way down the list, whereas it's prioritising. Um, money making and, and GDP, which we know doesn't measure the right things anywhere, and so we would very we specifically from the health sector, and which is why we're calling climate a climate emergency, a health emergency, um, is that it needs to be a much increased focus on supporting supporting the people um, and everything they need. So that would also include the food security, water security, roads, transport, health, mm. um, education, the psychological uh, components, as well as their capacity to earn a quid. Because obviously we know that you know poverty is not good for your health, uh, not good for your mental health, and again, so it's all factored in, and that should be the lens rather than just looking at you know making a buck again, because that really misses the key, the key component, and and that's you know that's not even starting on the um, uh, really important part of the solastalgia and that grief you get from seeing mm. the charred landscape and oh, realizing yeah. mm, that if that's... all those beasties have died and that's been the yeah. major source of the yeah. outpouring if you listen to the BBC World Service all night long if you're insomniac um, a lot of that has been focusing mm. on the on the mm. lost uh, environment because we also again it gets back to psycho- psycho- psychology mm. in that when we look upon a nice green lovely lush environment that's got you know sunshine and water our 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 limbic system, you know, our primal primal brain knows that this is secure. I feel safe. Mm-hmm. I can survive. That anxiety and deep fear and grief that comes from looking upon a polluted mm-hmm. environment or a charred environment, we feel insecure um, and, and there's no way yeah. of measuring that. Mm-hmm. You can have all the psychologists you like in the world. That's not going to cure it. So we need to do everything we can to prevent it. And I think um – sorry, I'm just putting on my anthropologist hat, I think we really need to think around the language of grief. You know, I just don't think we've got enough ways of describing the grief. I mean, there are many Indigenous ways of reconceiving of these things, right, and I'm seeing the landscape differently and and of interpreting it like this, but of, you know, of the grief of the loss of landscape, of the grief of the loss of animals and biodiversity and all of these things you know so often we're privileging property and we're privileging Mm. these you know these these very kind of knowable things and I'm not saying that they're not important but I feel like there's there are many types of grieving and I just don't feel like we have a proper proper set of languages for allowing people and particularly for allowing children to step through these experiences, but allowing these experiences for everyone. The other thing that I think is really important to focus on, and Jeanette, I wanted to ask you this earlier, is that, you know, one of the really strong sets of Indigenous perspectives that are coming through at the moment is around this set of ideas that you can't think of climate change in and of itself. You really have to link climate change to the historical colonial settler processes and the environmental degradation that's occurred because of that that have meant that Australia environmentally Australia is incredibly fragile yes and and so I just wonder if you could speak to that a Mm, little bit because I really feel like one of the things that people have not registered across Australia is just how critically vulnerable we are in 
to climate change, you know, that, mm. that we are really critically vulnerable and this is what we're seeing, mm. you know, at even a one-degree warming level at the Absolutely. Um, that, that last point that you made, that we're seeing this kind of clear evidence and impact at this scale with one degree of warming mm. when we are on track for three degrees is is just horrifying actually yeah. in in my mind so you you asked about the the link if you like or, or looking at it in the perspective of how australia has changed i think that's an extremely valid point when we think about climate change and we think about global heating in particular we're really looking at the effects of human activities on a global system. And people may have heard of the idea of the Anthropocene, mm. uh, where Anthropos means human, and basically we are now, it's quite generally understood in the scientific community at least, living in a geological era in which the primary marker is the impact of humans on the planetary system. I don't want to go into a great deal of detail about that, um, but I think you know people will understand what I'm referring to there. So when you think about the scale on which land clearing has occurred in Australia as well as in other parts of the world, uh, when you think about how vegetation communities and whole ecological communities have either been destroyed or have been altered fundamentally um, by the growing human population and by our activities, building urban settlements and putting in place infrastructure and so on and so on, it makes it that much more difficult for ecosystems to recover when they are stressed by something like a bushfire. It exposes systems such as we've seen during these current fires that have not burnt in memory at all in our history uh, and for which there is little past geological evidence that they have burnt. Uh, you know, for instance, the sites in New South Wales where the Gondwan and Wallamai pine was located, a Gondwanan, re Gondwanan relic, which is many millions of years old, um, that area has been burning. And it had obviously been protected from fire for a very long time for mm -hmm. us to have been able to find those extant mm -hmm. examples of that plant. Mm -hmm. um, so we have fundamentally modified and altered the landscape in Australia. And it has not been managed in a way that is particularly sensitive. And I'm here I'm making a great generalization. There are, of course, excellent examples of environmentally sensitive management in agriculture and in natural resource management in general in Australia and elsewhere. But in the broad, I think humans, us, we've made, done a great deal of damage to that environment. And I think there's a lot that we could learn from indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices. I listened to a fascinating podcast recently, which was looking at indigenous burning practices and how uh, communities in the past, prior to the arrival of European settlers, would use low temperature, low intensity mm, mosaic burns. burning mm. um, at very low temperatures, like 10 degrees, mm. to have these very controllable patch mm. works of fire to reduce the uh, fuel load and make sure that no ecological community was mm. destroyed or even adversely impacted particularly, yeah. but would just ma make things manageable. Well, and the whole landscape that that the explorers – Yes. saw when they arrived was radically altered by absolutely indigenous um, burning practices. And we know that the Australian ecology is is very extensively adapted to fire. Mm. Um, you know, eucalypts have the most amazing capacity, mm. many of them to regrow after having been apparently killed by fire. But and and so, yeah, the fauna have have similar um, adaptive strategies. But the scale and the intensity. Um, and the distribution, the widespread distribution of these fires in a fragmented landscape has made them so much worse in terms of their impact. Yeah. Now, we are going to take a break in a second, but I do have one final question on the politics that I'd like to pose to you, Stephen. One of the uh, solutions that the Prime Minister has put forward is floating the idea of a Royal Commission into this. This is an area of your expertise. Do you think a Royal Commission is useful? What's likely to come out of that? We've argued, my colleague Michael Eben and I, and, and after a lot of engagement and looking at all of the past literally hundreds of inquiries, that uh, a quasi-judicial inquiry is often uh, re-traumatises both responders and others. 
uh, it falls into a more adversarial and blame-seeking. If you think of recent and, and very effective Royal Commissions, such into child sexual abuse or uh, banking problems, you think, yes, that's an appropriate fact-finding and blame-laying and, and seeking to find out where wrong things were done. I, I start with the assumption that no-one involved in disaster preparedness or response actually sets out to do bad things to other people. So I think that kind of forum is not helpful. Now, if the Royal Commission at a national level is about the detail of what's happened and what we can learn from it, I don't think one inquiry will suffice, and New South Wales and Victoria have already said they will go with their their standard procedures in Victoria through the Inspector General, which is why they have that office. It wouldn't be able to be fine scale enough. If it is about Commonwealth engagement in, in future, uh, which has been a huge topic of conversation uh, for both good and bad reasons, it's not clear that questions of um, being able to release Commonwealth resources or personnel a day or two quicker than happened is actually needs a Royal Commission. You know, I mean, that is the sort of policy preparation change that could be done without it. So I think on, on inquiries generally, um, we're going to have to have coordination across borders much more than we've had in the past because of the cross-border nature of, of, of many of the fires. And to try and learn rather than to try and blame. And I, and I think we, we have in Australia, unfortunately, because of one government's propensity to call Royal Commissions inappropriately, We've, we've got to a stage where everything, anything that happens, someone will call for a Royal Commission without really thinking about, well, hang on, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to find out about fraud or abuse or something horrible or, or are we actually trying to yield lessons whereby we can do it better? And do we kick the can down the road through a Royal Commission when mobilising... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN coordinating state and commonwealth resources, you, you don't need a thousand-page report to do that. That's, that's the sort of thing we could do anyway. So I, 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 I don't see any real justification. And if they go ahead with the Royal Commission of broad intent, while the states are also having commission, uh, their own inquiries, you know, how many um, days in a, in a quasi-courtroom can these poor buggers who've been through all this Go through, yeah. But I think if we start with the with the assumption that what we want to do is learn, and this is not a context of trying to nab someone for blame. Now, if it comes out that someone acted with gross negligence or malintent, that's a matter for police investigation. Yeah. But I don't see the case for a royal commission other than for having one, which unfortunately the bar has been lowered in Australia. So we will continue. Look, honestly, there are some politicians, if some, someone stubs their toe, they say there should be a Royal Commission to it, and I'm not talking about the major parties. So I think we've got to resist that. That's the gold standard just because it is. It sounds really sensible, as always, Steve. One of the things I've been wondering about is if we were to set up something like a strategic task force that would then bring in, uh, and they're probably sort of onion layers all the way down in terms of making sure that all the health sector people talk together, but making sure that we bring together, you know, the health and the roads and the water and transport and comms, et cetera. Um, and so that we really do have a sort of multi-stakeholder preparedness. I mean, I know we have some, but boosting that because clearly it's a, you know, much more intense situation that we're facing. And, and I'd also like to see heat in this as well. Hmm. Look, I, I think that kind of ongoing capacity, I mean, we have a very good R&D capacity in the Bushfire Natural Hazard CRC. We don't know if it'll continue past next year. The emergency sector itself is very well organised across the states through the Australian Fire and Emergency Authorities Council, AFAC, using those kind of existing knowledge bases and interagency links to then build into that bringing in other sectors. And we, we only last year released a new national uh, disaster resilience framework, which is pretty vague, but okay, implement that. Um, 
looking at all of the, the different players that you've just mentioned. We sort of have the pieces there. It takes the, the effort and the needs will be ongoing. Uh, reconstruction is something we don't do particularly well coordinated way, but we generally do it okay. Reconstruction from these will be going on for 10 years, as we've said, if not more. Um, so that kind of task force or ongoing capacity is much better than a, a one-off inquiry that then delivers the three-kilogram report and throws it to everyone else. So, uh, yeah, I think that kind of ongoing one, but the R&D, the agency coordination and, and the forward planning, um, we could we could probably uh, start with, with dusting off the now one-year-old National Disaster Resilience Framework and the previous and still in place disaster resilience strategy and going, oh, we, we say these things, but okay, what does it mean to implement them over a 10-year and ongoing time frame? So I'd agree. But how would we sort of ensure that the thing didn't get eroded by subsequent governments or that the funding wasn't withdrawn, you know, to maintain the, you know, maintain the level of interest and, and determination because we know that the need is going to be there? That is the great question of public policy, of how we get outside of forward estimates and election cycles. Mm. And if you could answer that one, that would be, would be excellent. But the, a, a standing national arrangement, if the states and Commonwealth, and critically local government, who always get mm. left out of this, but actually play an immense role mm. in both preparedness, out. response and mm. recovery. Yeah, you know, if we could set something up with that kind of bipartisan and cross-jurisdictional support, then yeah, hopefully it would continue over time and, and not decay. But how you set policy processes in place for 10 to 20-year decadal policy responses is something we're not very good at. Steve, what about public perceptions here in terms of the Royal Commission? Clearly there's an appetite from the public for some kind of positive policy change. How are the public going to perceive the idea of a Royal Commission as a response to that? Are they going to see that as sufficient? Look, I think some would because it's it's a big thing that happens. And for some people, that they just want to see something happen. Um, the danger is, of course, with a, a, the inquiry model is that half the headlines that come out during the inquiry process are actually quite damaging because what they report is an allegation or a claim. And by the time you actually get to the final report, people have already decided that it was, you know, all the fiery's fault or all the greenies' fault or something. Um, but engaging different communities in the ongoing learning process is intensive work but very necessary because what worked in one place or what didn't work in one place will not play out always the same. And the singular answer to it's this is the magic answer be it prescribed burning or be it some communication strategy, generally is not very useful when you look across the multiple experiences. So it's a horrible way to put it, but this is actually an incredible learning opportunity because, you know, there's there's been so many different experiences. Hopefully we can maximise that, but in a constructive way. I mean, if someone did the wrong thing, then fair enough, but most people, and mostly when we come down to it, people do their their best at the time in incredible stressful yeah. situations. Can we learn from that? Yeah. Um, and isn't a critical issue about, you know, how do we actually get more boots on the ground? Isn't that, I mean, is there a role for the ADF or is that just a crazy idea? Surely this is a crucial security issue. It, it is, and we have an incredible volunteer base, but it is ageing. Mm. In some areas, it's quite limited. Um, we could have more paid. We could have extended. more paid responders if we want to pay for that. Um, the ADF incredibly useful in aspects of immediate recovery and potentially reconstruction, and that's not as new as people seem to think it is. No. But you know, the ideas of why why aren't they sending tanks in and can't we have all of the the aircraft for the ADF actually jerry rigged up with water tanks? You go well. They're not rebuilt really for that. And we could train up ADF as firefighters, but they might actually need to do something else when we need them to fight fires. So, yeah, there is a question of how much we're, we're prepared to afford. You know, the, the, Jeanette talked about the narrow windows for prescribed burning. If you've got a very narrow window and you've got six yep. burns on your agenda and you've got two units available to run those, then you'll get two done. So if we want to, but then we'll get a mild normal season and we'll go, oh, we're wasting millions on all this standing capacity. So there's some real choices in there. Yeah. And 
are we prepared to have scenic drives that actually have 100 metres cleared either side as a, as a disaster preparedness mechanism? I think there'll be some people in the affected communities who'll go, oh, oh, you know, that's not why we like... It'll kill tourism. Yeah. ...coming here. So all of those, those trade-offs are the ones that are going to come up. Hopefully we can think them through reasonably, reasonably clearly, but there will be resourcing issues. And whether a government who committed hugely to increase boots on ground in two or three years and we don't have another ace coming out of the pack, we'll have to continue to justify that, mm. that kind of expenditure. Okay, let's take a quick break there. But when we come back, we'll continue this really fascinating conversation. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We have already touched on some of the mental health aspects of the bushfires, particularly on those badly affected communities, but I'm keen to drill down a little more into some of this health stuff. So, Liz, 2019 was the hottest year on record for most of Australia. The Bureau of Meteorology has said that the average temperature was 1.3 to 1.4 degrees Celsius above average. What are some of those impacts of the higher average temperatures and heat waves on people's health that we can expect to play out in the future? Yeah, it's um, it's a critical issue for Australia, given that um, you know we're ahead of the curve in terms of we're already a hot country. So if you heat up an already hot country, then we're really busting up against the upper threshold for us to be able to do many things, um, and hence the fact uh, we die. Um, and so you those who are acutely affected. Um, can suffer the whole range of, uh, and it's cascading with increasing severity in terms of heat stress to, uh, in the worst case scenario, is um, is death. Second worst, of course, is hospitalised and long-standing organ failure and then death is hastened some sometime down the track. Other things are the fact that it limits people's capacity to do things in their normal daily life. Um, and again, it's much like the way we're sort of preparing for fires and, and responders to fires. Historically, we've actually thought in terms of a short-term heat wave, hence the fact delay work, work in the quieter part of the warmer part of the day. We're now facing extended periods where it is potentially lethally hot to go out and do things. So hence the fact we really need to reframe our whole our whole response in terms of what we're expecting and therefore what our response strategy is going to be because just telling people, oh, we'll just delay going outside till it passes, well, day after day after day after day after day, sometimes you just need to go out and do things. And that's that's problematic. And as far as the, you know, measuring and the burden of death and the um, health burden. Um, it's probably a little bit like when koalas might die of the heat. You know, they might drop out of the their tree one by one by one. We don't get a sense of how many, as compared to we can really tell with the um, flying foxes, um, because they live in colonies and they just dump, and you've got hundreds lying, and it's really dramatic, and we can actually see the burden. Uh, similar with with human health, we tend not, you know, we. People would kill over one by one by one, so it's not necessarily a great dramatic um, increase that that hits in the hits in the stats. And of course, we all know that the the actual deaths are normally recorded as a coronary death, and so we're missing that data. So it's falling under the radar. All we know at the moment is that heat kills more Australians than bushfires or any other natural hazard will increasingly do so. But there's also the extra range of of other associated impacts. And one of the, um, been looking at a, an article that was published in Nature, and that was looking at the increase in um, 
injuries, injury deaths in the in the US, and that's that increases as well. So that's the unintentional, which is the accidents, because people lose concentration if they're using equipment. They can have car accidents and sort of slippery hands and and incidents. And indeed, there's the intentional. So there's an increase in assaults and suicides, assaults uh, and interpersonal violence increases because people are crotchety. And so you get more days where it's uncomfortably hot and, you know, anyone can look at the stats in Darwin, the police stats and the hospital stats just go through the roof um, when they have that. And that pattern is replicated across the world. With, uh, as far as suicides are concerned, well, in the Australian context, most of that would probably relate to the fact that we get the heat waves often associated with droughts and now we're seeing fires as well. And particularly the 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 prompt in that people despair in terms of, well, I, they've lost control. What can they do? How can they resolve this situation in the, in the future? And that's when that long-term despair um, comes in. So, it, again, that's the, the, the mental health. But it's, um, it's a whole range of uh, problems. There's the um, thinking also that the uh, long-term heat exposure and particularly coupled with dehydration is a contributing factor to the diabetes in the Indigenous communities. Um, particularly those out on those out on country, we're chronically dehydrated, um, and if you extrapolate that to severe or quite intense levels um, over a long period of time, then you'll get chronic renal failure, and that's also um, reported in many of the developing countries with the fruit pickers and such, and particularly if water's not provided. Um, and so there's a whole range. So we're expecting quite a bit more, and of course with. The recent thing, of course, is the fires and the bush smoke, uh, bushfire smoke, which is can be quite toxic and precipitate a whole range of other um, health problems as well. And and Liz, uh, just on on that issue of the smoke, can you give us some insights into what some of the health issues are in the context of of smoke? Yeah, smoke is. Um, uh, we talk a lot about the the two point five, which of course I think people are beginning to realise are the two point five microns or less. Um, so they're the little chappies, and the reason that they're particularly hazardous to us is that they can actually pass through our little protective mechanisms, which are the nasal hairs and the and the mucus and the villi. You know, got little hairs all the way through our, uh, the major parts of our respiratory system, particularly the large larger um, corridors and tubes, um, and so they can actually get through into the bloodstream and then they some of these are particularly highly irritating so they can cause uh, irritation to the linings of the heart and the lungs and therefore trigger heart attacks um, and as well as irritation hence the fact that they can uh, uh, precipitate occlusion of the respiratory vessels as well particularly the small ones and so that's one of the reasons why they're particularly nasty they can also um, if they and again if they're circulating cross through into the uh, into the placenta and so it's not good for um, developing babies to be exposed to some of these toxics and so and we've also got quite a bit of data now emerging in terms of exposure to high concentrations of smoke and other pollutants also um, in for the developing developing lungs in in youngsters in particular, um, and so the Hazelwood fire we've found increasing risks or increasing health burden amongst those who were toddlers at the time, breathing high concentrations of air for an extended period of time. You've got to realise, of course, that we're you know humans are actually born prematurely. And that's because of our bipedalism and our big heads. So, and that's why we are so dependent on our parents compared to many other animals for such a long period of time. And if our heads were bigger or, you know, we got around on all fours, we could probably hold on to a baby a little bit longer if they were smaller. And so there's still a lot of development that goes on once we're born. Um, and hence the fact we're so concerned about uh, things getting into kitties' brains and, and particularly lungs and, and everything else about our physiology. So protecting children is um is particularly important and of course we know that for the elderly um their basically their you know general sort of physiological fitness is is lower so they're also um at high risk the other group that we're often very concerned about are those i mean particularly if it's smoke um then it's related to the dose so if you're out there breathing 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 with a fast respiratory rate, which means exercising or working, um, then you increase your dose. And, and many of these things are not only based on your ability to resist and respond appropriately, but your sensitivity. And so, again, it's hence the fact it's multifactorial in terms of uh, the level of harm it can do you. 
Um, and of course, dose also includes the duration of exposure and as well as the complexity, you know, because we're often not exposed to only one thing, you're exposed to multiples. So all in all, you know, it's it's not good, not good, stay away. So Jeanette, as Liz said there, of course, it's not just the health of humans that's affected by these fires. Mm. It's also that of wildlife and ecosystems mm. more broadly. What can be done today to prepare for the impacts of future climate change on Australia's really precious biodiversity? I think that the best thing that Australia could do would be to fully commit on a bipartisan or multipartisan basis to proportionate and effective emissions reduction targets. Mm-hmm. Agree. Because, you know, we've, we've been discussing the immediate and sort of in some ways longer term consequences of the events that we've been experiencing and reflecting on what we've learned from previous such experience. Prevention is better than cure, and I think that has already surfaced a little in this discussion. But I would say that if we are to have any hope of preserving the precious ecosystems, including those on which we absolutely depend for our survival in the longer term, we have to see effective national and international policy setting to get emissions down at the rates and at the scale that we have been advised by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and others is absolutely necessary, which is net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And even that is not what we now understand would be safe, but at least it would reduce the chances of getting up towards that three or even four degrees by the end of the century, which will undoubtedly, we absolutely know, be devastating. Well, I think, um, you know, thinking about in terms of, of, of policy, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. Uh, so I think what we might do now is just go have a bit of a roundtable and get your policy recommendations to the federal government, maybe starting with you, Siobhan. What do you think is you, – what's your primary policy recommendation that you can make to the federal government with regards to improving its preparation and also management of future fire emergencies? I think all I want to do is – echo what Jeanette said. You know, I think the critical policy issue that's on the table is a rethink of uh, commitment around real and tangible targets in terms of, I mean, I think meeting net zero emissions by 2050 is an incredibly important target. I think rethinking strategically a broad-based energy policy that includes renewables but um, looks more broadly at these sets of issues, I think recalibrating the economy to start thinking around just transitions becomes incredibly important. I mean, these are these. This is where the policy conversation needs to go, and this is important for Australia in terms of our regional relationships, and it's incredibly important in terms of our international relationships uh, and our reputation. But ultimately, it's incredibly important uh, if we want to secure for our children and their children a future like the like what we experienced as children if we want to continue to go to beaches if we want to continue to experience an australia that's full that's free of bushfires of floods of droughts then then we have to work towards securing that thanks Siobhan. and liz your one policy recommendation one policy recommendation would certainly be forget all all thoughts of expanding and supporting coal for a start um, and uh, continue on with the uh, – just significantly ramp up our, our emissions reductions. Um, but if I'm allowed a second, which you told me not to, um, is investing in preparing Australia in its broadest sense for how we're going to face this because that's the best way of minimising harm is stopping it and then – helping us adapt, which is this, you know, strategic task force or those sort of things we've been discussing. Steve? Um, I'll, I'm going to add one thing to a point and then a make a point, is when we think about the health implications, we need to think very closely about the health and life and death of responders 
mm. uh, who be made asked to be, do more mm. uh, in worse situations and a high priority of agencies is basically not to kill their own people. And I, there is pressure to say, well, we want you to get in there and be more aggressive and stop fires. And you have to think, well, you know, they, they face pretty horrendous circumstances and they do it very well. But if that gets worse, there's real implications. On the policy side, I'll leave the mitigation side and agree with everyone on, on emissions. Um, I think if you look at the national level, I'd say what, what can the Commonwealth do in a space that is largely state and Commonwealth in terms of adaptation and emergency management? It's coordinating things like the information systems, um, potentially in, in recovery, uh, and, and in being able to enable those sort of knowledge-based innovation uh, initiatives we've had, such as the Bushfire Natural Hazard CRC and NCARF, the, mm. the climate adaptation one, of, of there's a particular role for that coordination and enabling of of thinking forward and innovation. So it'd be good as we think policy to think who should do what, not just this ought to happen. And I think there are things the Commonwealth can do in this space in the adaptation that would be very enabling of of the, the other jurisdictions and of the private sector and communities that only a federal government could do. And it, it'd be good if that comes out of this, this well, I'm saying after these fires, they're not over. Of, of really thinking carefully about who does what mm. really well. And there is a role for the, for the feds in, in some aspects that I don't think have been discussed as much. And Jeanette, is there anything final you want to add on the policy front? I would just reiterate that while adaptation is essential because we are in the midst of global heating, it is impacting on us and we have to respond to that in the best way as possible. And I absolutely agree with what everybody else has said about that. We cannot afford to lose sight of the imperative for mitigating emissions. We have got to get emissions down and every country has a responsibility to do that to the limit of what they are capable of, what their potential is. And Australia is at the moment not playing its part. And if it's possible just to add one thing, Steve quite rightly um, added in that the as far as uh, protection um, and <clears throat> ensuring that our responding forces uh, uh, are cared for, because basically if they keel over, we're, you know, we're in a seriously bad state. But also in adding to that would be... Um, just reiterating the need to actually have an educated community so that people actually know what they're doing. So, you know, we've had Life Be In It campaigns. I think we really do need federally funded campaigns to actually prepare everybody for how they might respond, how to res to, to help ease the burden um, of the responders knowing that we're not going to be mm -hmm. here, but just basically so they can keep themselves safe and, and each other safe. Well, I think this discussion has really given us a taste of the really broad range of issues that are at play here and the many fronts uh, that we need our policymakers to respond and uh, and do something about. But it's, I want to thank you all for what has been a really thoughtful and really insightful discussion. So thank you, Jeanette. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Liz. And thank you, Siobhan. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. And listeners, if you would like to get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on the discussion, please don't hold back. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us a message at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you would like to donate and do your part to bring relief to some of those uh, fire-affected communities, you might want to check out the New South Wales Rural Fire Services, the Red Cross, uh, the Salvation Army, or Wires and Animal rescue collective we will leave a link to all of those in the show notes we'll be back next week with another policy forum pod but until then from me martin pierce cheerio and from me paul Vevel, take care and catch you later